Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 43, verse 16 to 34. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready. For the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, It is because of the money which, we, which was replaced in our sacks for the first time that we are brought in so that all that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks And there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and gave, had given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground and inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. He lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians." They sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Sword of God, you may be seated. In our reading today, there are 12 brothers. Ten had been in in Egypt before. One was left behind. Ten more came with the missing youngest brother. And one was already in Egypt, a brother that they had thought was gone and no more. These men that we read about here in the rest of the Bible, they're known as the patriarchs. They fulfill a place of great honor amongst the people who are known as the Jews, as the Hebrews to this day. 
They are the male founders of the tribes of Israel. Jesus comes through the lineage of Judah, Paul through the lineage of Benjamin. They are imperfect to say the least. The context of what is going on here is that the brother, the brother that they sold into slavery has now become the ruler of the nation that they are in. They don't know that it's him, but he knows that they are that they know he knows who they are. They have come to buy grain, and since there is no grain to be found in any other nation, they must come to Egypt. The first time they're in Egypt, Joseph, their brother, who's the governor over all of Egypt, he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. He knows that there is another brother who is the youngest brother, Benjamin. He tells them to come back with him or that they'll die. As surety for this, he keeps one of the brothers behind, Simeon. This is a great test. It's going to show whether or not his brothers really have changed, if years have really, have really, done, have really done their work, or if they're the same way that they used to be. So he already knows he has a younger brother, Benjamin. And he's wondering, what happened to Benjamin after I left? There's only two brothers from this one woman named, uh, named uh, Rebecca. Oh, I was, no, Rachel. There we go. <laughs> I almost messed that up. Messed that up. Um, the oldest, Joseph, was the one who was taken away into slavery, the youngest being Benjamin. And having him and seeing him back tells him so much. They, they return home. When they return home the first time, they found the money that they had used to buy grain in their satchels, which makes them very worried. And it makes it very dangerous to come back for them personally. But their brother Simeon has no other, has no other means of salvation. And they themselves have ran out of that food and must return back. They've been accused of spies. Would they now be called something worse? It would much worse be done to them. Have they come, out, have they come back only to find the sword? No. Instead of a sword, they'll find a feast. Instead of wrath, they'll find grace. And it amazes them. Our problem today, so much of our problems today, is that we forget how truly amazing grace is. Grace in the scriptures is often illustrated by that of a feast. And that's why, as we read today, this feast that Joseph prepares for his brothers, his brothers who had beat him, had tore his coat of many colors into shreds, told their father that he had died. He prepares for them a feast. And in the rest of scripture, we see feast being a symbol, being an illustration of grace. I think I've got some slides here. Thank you so much. We have the feasts that the Israel were supposed to observe from Leviticus chapter 23. And all of these feasts that they are to observe, it was to remind them of a time of grace that God had poured into their life or was continuing to pour into their life. Whether it was just simply the harvest coming in or it was something like the first one you see up there, which is the Passover, the Lord's Passover. That happens in the next book in Exodus. It's the last plague against Egypt, the death of the firstborn. And when the and when death came to Egypt, it didn't look to see inside the house, okay, who's righteous and who's not righteous, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every Egyptian, every Hebrew, the only thing that would save anybody's life, the first, that would save the firstborn's life, is if the blood of the lamb was sprinkled, was put on the doorpost and on the threshold. Jesus Christ when he's coming to be baptized, his cousin John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ is our Passover Lamb. When we die and we come to judgment, 
The Lord will not have a scales like in the Egyptian mythology in which you have your heart on one side, a feather on another. And if your heart is as light as a feather, you get to go on. If it's heavier than a feather, some monster eats it. No, all that will be looking for, all that the book of life will be looking for is are you covered in the blood of Christ? Is in the doorpost of your, and threshold of your heart, is it covered in the blood of Christ? Jesus Christ fulfills that feast. And each one of these, they are known as feasts, as banquets. And then let's go to our ne- my next slide after that one. The feast of grace and the prodigal son. In several of Jesus' parables, he talks about the kingdom of heaven being like a feast, being like a banquet. In, in uh, Luke chapter 14, before I go to the prodigal son here, which is in 15, Jesus gives a parable about a banquet being held. In Luke chapter 14, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, his servant to say, had his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. So he compares the kingdom of God like a great man giving this banquet. And he invites so many people. And then he goes, the banquet's ready. Everything is prepared. It's time to eat, folks. So his servant goes out and he goes to those who have been invited and they all have an excuse. And Jesus then uses the excuses others gave for not following him as the excuses why they won't come to the banquet. So the banquet, of course, being the illustration of salvation. And there would be people who said, okay, I'd like to go to your banquet, but I got some new ox that I want to try out. Another person's like, I want to go to your banquet, but my dad just died, like probably like 10 years ago, but whatever. And so there's my excuse for not following you. Another person's like, well, I just got married so that means I can't go to the banquet. And the, that great man, he becomes furious and he tells his servant, well, go out, find the poor, find the beggars, find every person you can, invite them to my banquet. They do so and they say there's still room. He says, go out to the by, byways and the highways so that my house may be filled. This banquet of grace that the Lord sets before us is amazing. It's undeserved, it is unexpected, and it is free And we see that most in the illustration of the prodigal son. The prodigal son, you may know this story about a man in chapter 15. Jesus gives three parables. One in each one, a person loses something, a coin, a sheep. And the third one, it's the worst of all. A person loses, a man loses a son. His youngest son is lost in a faraway land, but then he comes back to him and there's this great rejoicing. He kills the fatted animal and he has this great banquet, but then his oldest son, who's been at home, who says he slaves for his father, will not enter the feast of his father. And the father pleads with him, pleads with him to accept this. And in Luke chapter 15, verse 32 it is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He is lost and he is found. The feast represents the intimacy we have with the Lord. We have the Last Supper in which we commemorate the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ as a remembrance feast of remembering his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us is in remembrance that we were lost and are found, we're dead and are now alive in Christ. It is to remind us that the Feast of Grace is something current and not just to come or in the past, 
But it is every time we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And the ultimate expression of this illustration is in the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the marriage supper of the Lamb, at the Last Supper, going back to the Last Supper, Jesus told his disciples that he would not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day that when he would drink anew in his Father's kingdom. The ultimate fulfillment of the Feast of Grace is the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of many pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made her ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. There's this, I don't know what do you call it, illustration or whatever, a guy named Alistair Begg, Pastor Alistair Begg, talks about the thief on the middle cross coming to heaven. I'm going to adapt that a little bit. About you and me when we're at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We've been given these fine clothes, which are the righteous deeds of the saints, even though every single one of us knows that none are righteous, no, not one, that it is Christ's righteousness that we wear. Can you imagine if somebody comes up to you at this grace feast and they ask, what are you doing here? And before you can say anything, they're like, look over there, there's Moses. You know what Moses did? Moses believed God and he split the Red Sea. Did you split a Red Sea? No, I didn't split the Red Sea. Hey, over there's Paul. Paul is a Hebrew of Hebrews. He performed miracles. He heard from the Lord Jesus Christ. How about you? No, no, I don't either. So what are you doing here? I was just told I could come. I was invited. I was one of the beggars. I was one of the people in the highways and the byways that the servant came and said, you're invited. You know, I think so much of the problems that we continually fall into, whether it's sin or despondency or many other things, is that we forget how truly amazing it is that we've been invited at all. As one hymn writer would say, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. And heaven and nature sing. Joy, unspeakable joy. It is a feast set before us and it is all of grace. These Ten brothers, they don't understand grace. They have a guilty conscience. In the previous chapter, as things they thought were bad coming upon them, they, they said to themselves, this is because of what we did to our brothers. Our brother, they don't have a category for grace yet. They returned to Egypt not knowing what to expect. In fact, the first time was very unexpected um, in and of itself. I mean, in fact, I mean, when is the last time you went to go get a coffee over at the feed mill and they said, we're not going to sell you any coffee. You're just a spy for scooters. <laughs> like, I'm not a spy. I've got one brother and three sisters. I mean, a pretty unexpected thing happens. They don't know what to expect this time. In fact, they have good reason to expect this is going to go badly because the money that they spent on the grain 
was put back into their sacks. So they wonder, are they going to call us thieves? Are they going to call us, are they going to call us many things that we have really no real good defense for? We know they'd return to Egypt. We know that Egypt and the rest of the Old Testament is a place of contrasting concepts. It's a place of slavery. Abraham was told this, not specifically Egypt, but he was told when God cut the covenant with him that his children, that his progeny, his offspring, would be slaves in a land that they were not, that was not their land for 400 years. The word of the Lord to Abraham when he cut the covenant with him. For know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and will be afflicted for 400 years. I don't know how much of that is in the mind of the ten, but they are certainly worried that they will become slaves at the end of this, at the end of this moment, at the end of this meeting. I know nine were obviously worried by what, by what they say and what they do in this chapter that Becca read. After all, these things went pretty unexpected last time. When they left last time, they had to leave Simeon behind. Who would they leave behind this time? They had silver, and not a very good reason for having the silver. They could be killed, they could be enslaved, they could be imprisoned. And you know what was on their mind most of all? They're like, if things go really bad, they might do something to our donkeys. What a great, like, it's a great, I love those little details in the scripture to let us know this isn't a fairy tale, this isn't made up. We all have irrational things. Like if my house was on fire, I guarantee you, I'd be like, where's Buddy and Bear? Let it all burn, but just be, make sure they're okay. And of course, my wife, if she was in there, that'd be my first concern. That'd be my first concern. <laughs> so they don't know what to expect, but what about what's about to be presented before them is a feast and a feast of grace. Grace is one of those churchy words that we say a lot, but do we truly comprehend how amazing grace is? The de- dictionary definition of God's grace is unmerited favor. We get what we don't deserve. But when you experience grace, it means something so much more. You know the song Amazing Grace? We all know Amazing Grace. If you've never even been to church, you know the song Amazing Grace. You're probably hearing it with the bagpipes right now, even as I'm talking. It was written by a man named John Newton. John Newton was a captain on a slave ship. Here's some facts about his life you might not know. He spent time as a slave. He was captured, he was enslaved, and his family brought his freedom. I say this to tell you the depth of his sin and why he said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So he had been enslaved and now he was part of the slave trade, ferrying slaves in a hellish environment from one end, one end of the world to another, having been a slave himself. So he does it with conscience, meaning con, which is Latin for with, science, knowledge, with knowledge. This is why we stand so guilty before God. We can say to ourselves, we can lie to everybody else, oh, I didn't know. But no, our conscience says he absolutely did know, and he did it anyway, with knowledge. With knowledge, he does this. He ferries them over. And then one night, while it was a really bad storm, he calls out to God that if God would save him, he'd give God his life. And so God does save him, but it wouldn't be until weeks after that, years after that, that he really realized the depth of his sin and was broken by it. Because John Newton's life is also not a fairy fairy tale. It's not on Hallmark Channel. Epiphanies with sin do not come 
instantaneously. It takes a while before it seeps in. But once he understood the depths of his sin, he became, in that time, an abolitionist. Knowing that he had condemned so many innocent men to death and worse, he had to be part of the solution. And one of his disciples that he brought up in the faith was a man named William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was a rich young man. Him and his friend William Pitt joined Parliament as a dare. William Pitt ends up becoming the Prime Minister. And then William Wilberforce gets radically saved. And all he wants to do is he just wants to live a life of peace and privacy, enjoying God and knowing God. And a man named Iquano, who was a former slave, tells him, and I'm just summarizing so much of history right here, that he's in Parliament for such a time as this. And that God wants him there to abolish this terrible slave trade. And in his lifetime, in William Wilberforce's lifetime, the slave trade is outlawed in all of England. Now, I don't know if this is a quote by John Newton in reality or just in the movie Amazing Grace, but either way, it was so powerful. He said, in my old age, I only know two things. That I am a great sinner and Christ is a better Savior. That I am a great sinner and Christ is a better Savior. These men, through the next, till we get to the very end of, of the book of the beginnings, will understand that more and more and more. Right now, they have a feast set before them. It is a feast of grace. Here are three things from our reading today that we can tell from the feast of grace. Amazing grace is this. One, it is free, verses 16 and 17. Two, it is unexpected and undeserved, verses 18 through 26. And three, it is amazing. It is amazing. One, it is free. But there's no such thing as a free lunch. Have you heard that before? It's false and it's true. There are lunches you don't pay for, but somebody pays for that lunch. Somebody always pays for it. The Feast of Grace is free because it's been paid for by someone else. In this particular case in our reading today, it's Joseph's beast that has to be put to death. It's Joseph's grain that gets made into bread. It's Joseph's wine that gets made into grapes that gets made into wine. But it's so much more than the expense of this meal. You know what it cost for Joseph to look at his 10 brothers before they came to Egypt? His last memory of them was beating him, stripping him of his clothes, luring him into a pit, selling him into slavery. The entire while, according to his brothers, he was pleading for mercy and he got none. And now he's in a place where he can exact vengeance on them. Instead, he chooses mercy and grace. See, for all of us, we don't have this perspective of mercy, grace, and forgiveness that Joseph does because rarely are we ever put in a place to exact vengeance on somebody who's wronged us. We can say all the time, oh, I've forgiven that person, I've forgiven that person, but in, until we're actually in that position to where we can be harsh or kind to the person, we don't truly know that. I, I, the Lord revealed that to me one night. There was a, when I was growing up, one of the men my mom dated, he was very physically abusive. And I, had, I, was, I was in church camp. I remember tears falling down my face as I told the Lord, I forgive him, I forgive him, I forgive him. And then one night I had a dream. In this dream, this man was there and I was beating him to an inch of his life. I wake up choking on my own stomach bile knowing I hadn't forgiven him. 
I may have had the emotions, I may have said it, but I hadn't truly forgiven him. And that was the moment where God gave me the grace to forgive him. Truly, we can't even forgive other than by grace because Christ has forgiven us. Speaking of no such thing as a free lunch, it costs somebody something. I heard this story one time about a, a chicken and a pig. A chicken and a pig, they were sitting outside the farmer's house, and in this story they can talk, so it's like babe, and I don't know what a ch- talking pig is, a chicken is. But the guy, the thing fell on his head, right? Oh, anyway, um, so they're talking, and the chicken is, he's, he has his head up, he's like, you know what's awesome about being a farm animal? We provide so much for these people. He's like, you know, they're about to eat breakfast, and we provide that for him. And the pig's giving him side eye, and he's like, hey, buddy, speak for yourself. You give a contribution with your egg, I have to give a sacrifice for the bacon. The Feast of Grace, it is free to the person who eats, who partakes in it. It's costly to the one who gives it. We see in verse 16, Joseph sees his brothers, he sees Benjamin. I, I have to believe, and I really think the scripture is, is telling us this, that Joseph is looking for Benjamin, he's looking for his brothers, which I find to be astounding, because I was thinking about this, if I'm in Joseph's shoes, I'm assuming they are exactly what they were back when we were kids, and they're living, leaving Simeon to rot. I don't know how long it's been since they've been in Egypt. It's long enough for the food that they had gotten to run completely out, and then sometime. Judah said, we could have been there and back twice over, and we're talking about a major trip. So if I'm in Joseph's place, I'm writing them off, and I'm not sure what I'm going to do with Simeon exactly. That's not Joseph, though, because Joseph is waiting for them. He's looking for them. A few weeks ago, I talked about, you know, we don't see the people we're not looking for. I gave the illustration of seeing Lily at the state science fair and in my mind thinking, that's Lily, but it's not Lily because I'm not expecting to see Lily here. He's expecting to see them. He's expecting to see Benjamin. And when he sees Benjamin, he makes special note of it because Benjamin, once again, it's his only full brother. The others are half-brothers. They're from the same father, but different mothers. And in seeing Benjamin, this is so much confirmation for his heart about so many things. Here's one that Benjamin was safe under their care. For Joseph, I have to imagine this is a miracle compared to what he knew of his brothers. That what they had done to him actually did produce something in their hearts. He gives them an invitation. He invites them to his house for a meal at noon. In the ancient world and in much of the modern world, in fact, I don't know when this stopped being the case, but having somebody over for a meal actually meant something. It was kind of a uniting with that person. It's why the apostles say, talk about the hypocrites in the church who pretend to be Christians but live an ungodly life and very outwardly, not that they're sinners who are repenting, but they are outwardly living a licentious life that they just don't care about, don't even eat with them. This wouldn't just be some quick lunch either. In fact, that's something under the um, unexpected part I could have put, is that they're expecting just to eat some bread, but he has killed an animal. The diet of the ancient Near East all the way to the time of Christ did not revolve around meat. That would only be very, very special occasions. Would you kill an animal to eat it because you, you were dependent on its milk, its fur, and whatever else it might do for you? So you'd only do that for very special occasions, and they don't know how very special this feast is going to be for them, so they just think, well, he's going to come here at noon to eat bread, and we'll be here. This is a 
magnificent feast and it costs them nothing. This wouldn't just be some quick lunch. They've killed an animal. In the ancient Near East, all the way to the time of Christ, people's meal would revolve mainly around bread unless it was a great banquet, which would be meat. Which, man, that must be some good bread because I don't, I'm not even eating bread right now. By the way, I love that I'm preaching on this and you can probably all smell the bacon from yesterday, right? Uh, we had our men's breakfast. So I said before, this is an invitation. It's not really an invitation. They are brought to Joseph's, Joseph's house. This adds to their anxiety of what they must be feeling. They must be thinking, here it comes. Here comes the other shoe. They think that they are coming to a house not for lunch, but to be lunch. This feast they are about to have costs them nothing. They expect and deserve not Joseph's open arms, but the back of his hand. Instead, they get a feast. As Christ's disciple, we look at Joseph here. He, is, he has good reason to rough them up, to treat them the way he's, treated, they, he's been treated. Maybe even kill them, but instead he blesses those who curse him. He shows love to those who said they hated him. He forgives and he lives at peace. As disciples of Christ, this is the life that God has called us to as well. Verses 18 through 26, we see this feast that is being given, this feast of grace. It is unexpected and it is undeserved. In verse 18, what were they expecting? Verse 18, they were expecting nothing good. Kill them, take their stuff. Once again, very concerned about the donkeys. It's kind of funny. We might be slaves and if things are really bad, they might take our donkeys. Will someone please think of the donkeys? Going to Joseph's house must have seemed like the adult equivalent of going to the principal's office. The word that translates in 18 as afraid is yahar, which means utter dread. So not just mildly concerned, they expected this because of that silver. That silver that's in their bag. Remember, they still have this guilty conscience from the last, last chapter. They do not assume anything good will happen to them. They assume here comes finally the consequences. They have a guilty conscience. And when you have a guilty conscience, every blessing will feel like a curse. You ever try to bless somebody with a guilty conscience? You can't. Because no matter what you do, they'll complain about it. And people who have a guilty conscience who don't really realize they have a guilty conscience, you know what it looks like? If you gave them tickets to Disney World... They'd complain because now they got to go to Florida, and Florida's kind of like a basement, blah, 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 blah. You can't bless somebody with a guilty conscience. And they're being blessed, but they don't believe it. This feast of grace will be very, very unexpected and very undeserved. They have a past expectation here. One chapter before this, when we read about their first visit to Egypt, we see their general attitude. They expected the worst. Why? They expected the worst because they had done the worst. And we see in their heart in Genesis chapter 42, verses 21 and 22. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is, this is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning. They come to the door and they don't want to go inside the door. They want to talk to the steward and I don't blame them. Maybe the steward might give them a little more mercy than the Lord of all the land with this maybe stolen silver that they think people are thinking that's stolen, but it's not stolen. In verse 20, they address the steward extremely politely. You notice this? They say, oh my Lord, 
Oh, dear good sir, we are just poor men. We don't know how the silver came, up, came to us. Very smart on their end. I would be extremely polite as well. They said, oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. Verse 21. And when, they, and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was, there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Our money is in full weight, so we have brought again with us. They're very polite in verses 21 and 22. They have the silver and they have an expectation that they're hoping will not be fulfilled, which is they'll be called thieves and be, and be taken as slaves. They try to explain themselves and are worried about the, what the steward might think. On top of that, they have a new need as well. They have a new need and need of their people. It would seem that their best hope would be just to be given to give twice the money for the same amount of grain and then be, then be put on their way. But God has greater things in store for them in the rest of this, in the rest of this book. In verse 23, this is how the steward replies to them. He replied, peace to you. Peace, that word peace right there is translated as shalom. So a completeness to you. Not just simply a cessation of hostilities, but a completeness to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in, in your sacks for you. I received your money and he brought Simeon out to them. This steward, from the steward to Pharaoh to Potiphar, we see something about Joseph is he doesn't shut up about his faith. And I, I mean... You, th- you see the boldness of Joseph, right? In that he's been a slave, he's been a prisoner, he's now the governor. Threats and stuff really I don't think are going to affect him too much. So wherever he's at, he shares his faith. And we see that reflected into the stewards, into the, what the steward tells these brothers. The steward, who's an Egyptian, I don't know if he became a, became a convert or not. But he says some very things that I think a, an Egyptian, a normal Egyptian pagan wouldn't know. First of all, is that there is just one God. He calls him the God. El, Elion, the God. Now that's blasphemy for an Egyptian to say because they believed in all these uh, plethora of gods um, of different kinds. And when God actually strikes the Egyptians, every single plague is tailor-made to show how their gods have no authority in heaven or on earth. And this guy right here, he knows something of their religion. He knows, one, the God of the Hebrews is the only true God. He knows the God of the Hebrews provides for his people. Something more here. He knows that the God of the Hebrews provides for these brothers, but the God of the Hebrews has actually provided for Egypt and all of the lands around them. You can imagine this steward talking with Joseph, and Joseph is telling him, hey, it's because of the disobedience of my brothers that you're even alive today. Because they sent me ahead. I came here. God, the God of my fathers has sent me here, and that is why many are being kept alive to this day. The God of the Hebrews provides for his people. Three, God works through secondary means. Four, God works discreetly. I'm going to bring these both together. Because there's this illustration of a man there was a flood coming, and he prayed to God, and he heard from God that God would save him from the flood. And some of you have heard this. Water starts coming in. It starts getting, you know, about to your feet. And his neighbor has a big old truck, and his neighbor says, get in. Well, let's get out of here before it gets worse. And the man tells him, no, no, God told me he'll save me. Water starts rising. Another neighbor comes in a speedboat and says, hey, get in. Let's get out of here. It's only going to get worse. And he says, no, God will save me. 
The water gets high. He's on his rooftop. Here comes the emergency helicopter. They, they, they lower that thing. They tell him, get on it. Let's get out of here. It's only going to get worse. And the man says, no, God will save me. It gets worse. His, his house is blown away. He dies. He is before God. And he has a bone to pick with God. He said, God, you told me you'd save me. And God tells him, well, I gave you a truck. I gave you a boat. And I gave you a helicopter. God works through secondary means, which is through the steward. How cool is that for the steward? Getting to show the love of God to these undeserving men through, through the inspired machinations of his master, Joseph. God works through secondary means and God works discreetly. It's this steward who put that money back into their sacks. Everything he's saying is true because he's saying it from both a technically true that he had taken their money it's also cosmically true because God had directed Joseph to have to direct him to put that money back into their sacks. In verses 24 through 26, the banquet begins, the feast begins, and it is unexpected and undeserved. What happens couldn't be more different than what they were expecting. They are given water to wash their feet. They prepare their gift, and when Joseph comes, they bow to him. Do you remember Joseph's dreams that they hated him for? That they, when they saw him coming from a ways off, they're like, let's kill him and let's see what happens from his dreams. They're his dreams is that they were gathering wheat. You know, don't you love like hindsight being 2020? They were gathering wheat. And his sheath of wheat is upright and their sheaths of wheat bow down to his. They hated him for this because they, were, because they assumed they already knew what was in the mind of God. And they didn't like it. That's why we're hesitant to pray, thy will be done, because we're secretly suspicious of the Father's intentions towards us. His second dream was that the stars were bowing down to him, which would be his other brothers. They hated him for this. Now we've come to the fulfillment. This is the second time they've bowed down to him in reverence and probably to butter him up just in case just in case he's changed his mind or really they brought him inside so they couldn't get away they're not angry anymore they're not furious and when they had said before let's kill him and see what comes of his dreams here's what's come of his dreams they praise god for it and they glorify god for it so much of faith is understanding to say to god you know better than i you see clearer than I can see. And I can trust you in the dark because you've been with me in the light. When they saw him in the field some 20 years ago, they wanted to kill him and said to one another, let's kill him and see what comes of his dreams. This is what comes of his dreams. They are blessed for it. The feast of grace is unexpected and it's undeserved. Here's the last one. It is amazing. It is amazing. Um, the picture I have right here, it's from a uh, movie and a book called Babette's Feast. The movie's from the 80s, the, move, the book is from the 50s, and I haven't watched or read either one, but Philip Yancey talks about it in his book, uh, uh, how, um, how Amazing is Grace? Uh, what is his book called again? Um, What's So Amazing About Grace? Um, in his book, he talks about, and I'm going to give my best um, understanding of it, um, once again, from his summary in the book, is that he, he sees this book and he sees the movie as a parable of, of God's grace. 
And how much of our Christian life is not spent in joy, but it should be spent in joy because we don't realize how amazing grace is. In the book and in the movie Babette's Feast, there is this uh, village over in somewhere in, uh, over in Scandinavia. And it is uh, filled, one of the churches in this village is a uh, Lutheran sect um, that really believed that you needed to separate yourself from anything that was good in this life that would be pleasurable to your senses. Um, the Bible actually condemns this as asceticism. That we should take with thanksgiving and joy the good things of this world because those were given to us by God, by God's grace, his common grace. But they wanted to show how incredibly pious they were, so um, they would reject anything that was not the most blandest of the bland of the bland. In fact, what they would eat is boiled cod. If you've had boiled cod before, it is known as the poor man's lobster because it tastes like nothing, just like how the bug flesh that comes from lobsters tastes like nothing. And, uh, and they would eat a gruel made out of boiled bread. Gross. Because they, 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 they didn't want anything of this world. They wanted their only enjoyment to come from the Lord. And that, once again, that is not, that's not good. But the one thing good about their, their little commune, their, their church, is that they would gather in their square and they would sing songs about the kingdom. And during those moments where they were united in praise and worship of the kingdom of God and the joy to come was a sweet moment. The man who led this congregation had two gorgeous daughters. One was named uh, Martine after Martin Luther, and the other one was, uh, her name is something like Philippi. It's, I don't know, I, I don't speak that language, so it's hard for me to remember. And she was named after one of Martin Luther's uh, uh, confidants. And they were, they were absolutely beautiful. One had been, uh, had been approached and pursued by a man who was in the military, she ended up ultimately rebuffing his advances because she, she believed that she needed to be with the, with the church because the work of the church was so important. The other one, also beautiful, had a beautiful singing voice. This French opera singer hears her, has her sing for him, and he wanted to take her back to France to become this great opera singer. But she knew that she couldn't leave her father. So both of them, years pass, the father dies, these two women, they never marry, they become these two spinsters taking care of the community. And the community had shrunk. It was already small, but it shrunk even worse. Infighting. This happens almost in every kind of community, no matter what it is, especially in churches, unfortunately. Infighting. One brother wouldn't speak to the other brother because that brother had stolen their father's inheritance. One woman wouldn't speak to a person who was her best friend over an argument that neither of them remembered, but both of them remembered the offense, so they wouldn't say anything to each other. And one by one, people stopped coming at all to this community except for the most aged who had been taken care of by these two daughters. Well, one day, this woman comes to their house. She can't speak any, any of their language, only speaks French, and her name's Babette. There's a note on her from the from the one daughter's boo, who is the French opera singer, and says, on the note, says, her name is Babette, she can't speak any of your language, but she can cook. He puts that all in capital letters. So they, they've set her to work, and they, out of their Christian charity, they, they clothe her, they board her, and they, they, um, she asks them, is there anything that she can do as she learns their language? They're like, we hear you can cook, but we don't want any of that weird French stuff. We hear you guys eat you know, things like frogs and, and horses and stuff. 
only make the gruel the way we tell you to make the gruel. And, and she turns her face. It's, you know, it's gross. Letter comes from her, comes for her. And she tells these, these two old spinsters, she's like, and very matter-of-factly, I've got good news. One of my friends over in France put my numbers in the French lottery. I've won. I've won 10,000 francs. I'm going to be going back, but you guys have that 100th anniversary coming up in remembrance of your dad. I've not asked anything. Just let me cook the meal for you. Under distress because they're like, oh, what are we going to be eating, monkey brains and stuff? Um, They're like, okay. People in their community, they express concern too, so they tell the people in their community, when we eat Babette's feast, don't show any enjoyment and don't compliment her on any of these things. We'll keep our word, but we'll make sure to keep the tenets of, of the faith that we, used, that we used to have and currently have. So Babette's, the, the day comes and this feast is set before these people. And one of the ladies, she has her nephew come. That nephew who was a person in the French military during the time when he was courting the one, one daughter has now become a high-ranking general. And he is sitting there, and they start off with the appetizers and all these things that Babette had been bringing in. And all the, all the town is amazed because you've got tortoise, you've got all these animals coming in, you've got wine being imported from all over Europe. And they start the, they start the feast, and all of the, all of the people in this church, they have just a stone face on their face. They know it's really good, but remember, they're not going to tell. They're not going to give Babette the, the satisfaction of knowing that she did a good job. The general's not in on this, and he's losing his mind. He drinks the champagne and wine. He says, it's the best I've ever tasted. They start the soup. He's like, this tastes like tortoise soup, but there's no tortoise, tortoise, around here. He starts eating this food, and, and as they start eating, as they start enjoying this meal together, they start smiling. They don't tell Babette she's doing a good job, but they start smiling. The time of togetherness starts melting their heart. The two friends reconcile and ask for forgiveness from each other. The one brother confesses his wrongdoing to the other and, 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 and swears he will make it right. And this community starts coming back together. The general stands up, gives a toast, and he quotes from the psalm that mercy and peace have kissed one another. And this congregation goes out into the town square and they start singing those songs once again that used to unite them. And as they come back into the place, the two sisters remember, oh, that's right, we told everybody, don't give Babette the satisfaction of knowing she did a good job. Don't say how good this tastes. So they come in and Babette's in her kitchen. She is wiped out. She has no energy left. She's trying to clean things up. And they tell her, we're so sorry, we we forgot to tell you this is amazing. We'll always remember this when you go back to France. And she turns to them very matter-of-factly says, I'm not going back to France. And they're like, well, why not? She says, I'd, I'd, going back to France would, would cost a lot, and, then, and I don't have anything. And they said, well, what about the 10,000 francs? She said, that's what this cost, is 10,000 francs. They, their, their mouths are gaped open, and Babette says, you remember when the general during the meal said that this food tastes so much like that world-class restaurant in France, the French Cafe. I was the lead chef there. And for 12 people, that's what it costs, is 10,000 francs. We jump to verse 33 for a second. Presented with this amazing 
feast and food from the host's own portion, they are amazed. I believe that so many of our problems we constantly deal with is that we've forgotten how amazing the feast of grace truly is. As they come to this feast, as Joseph comes to this feast, their amazement starts when this great man who holds over them life and death, he doesn't have some pronouncement, he doesn't have some speech, he asks about how they're doing personally. Asks about their father, asks about all these things. He sees his brother Benjamin, and it says that he was moved with compassion. If you have a King James Version today, it says his, his bowels yearned. And that is because in, 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 in the ancient Near East, they believed the seat of the emotion wasn't the heart, it was the, the bowels, which is interesting. If you have a King James, you're probably wondering if he had like some kind of stomach bug. No, it's sort of the seed of the emotions are. He's overcome and he, and he weeps. He weeps, you know, there's a saying that real men don't cry. Well, the savior of our world, Jesus Christ, wept. Joseph weeps when he sees Benjamin. But then he controls himself and goes back out. Yes, men, women, we should cry. We should cry about the right things. And we should be controlled. Emotions are wonderful, but they are used to worship our God. We shouldn't worship them. Our society worships emotions. It's not about what you said. It's how I took it when you said it. There are three seating arrangements. Joseph is sitting by himself, being the governor over all of Egypt. He has a special place in any place that he would eat. The Egyptians are sitting by themselves because they see it as an abomination to sit with, to sit with Hebrews, probably specifically shepherds, since shepherds had a very bad, um, bad reputation amongst the people in the ancient Near East. But all this doesn't matter. Well, you know what matters is that they are sitting with the governor over all the land, and they know that they do not deserve to. This is not expected, but it is truly amazing. And God doesn't just keep us from hell. He also adopts us into his family. He seats us with kings and angels for his feast of grace. And in Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made a lie made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness, grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God and not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we, that we should walk in them. This is amazing, and it amazes them in verses 33 and 34. In verse 33, they're amazed. Um, part of their amazement is that he seats them according to the oldest to, youngest to the oldest. How does this guy know? He's a really good listener, or maybe he knows more than he's letting on. A commentator, Lighthammer, says, you're almost like biting your fingernails reading this because you're like, how don't they get that this is somebody who at least knows them better than what he's letting on? But they don't. And their amazement extends from there because their youngest brother is given five times the portion that they're given. But they're not angry about it like they used to be. God has really done a work in these men's life. Not a, it's not been completion yet. He has started a good work. He'll carry it to completion. They know they deserve to die. They deserve to be enslaved. Instead, they are fed with the same food from the governor's table. They are amazed because it is amazing. 
I talked about in Babette's feast that the general stands up and gives a toast and he quotes from Psalms. He quoted from Psalm 85, verses 10 and 11. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. When you look at the cross, that's what you're seeing. That God, because God is righteous, cannot just simply let sin go. It needs to be punished. But he's also loving. He is also the Shoel Shalom, the God of peace, the God of wholeness. How can he bring unrighteous sinners into wholeness with him? Righteousness and peace must kiss. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. And today I just have one major point, and this is, I'm actually finishing. Um, worship team, you can come up at this time. Have you forgotten how amazing grace is? In preparing today's sermon, I loved it because it was like cake. So much of what I've been going through, it's, it's a lot of griddle, gristle because it is difficult things for our heart to understand. But this was like cake because it is God's grace and God's grace is amazing. And then I started getting uncontrollably convicted because I had to say, I forget often how amazing grace is. I'm like the two spinsters in Babette's Feast. And all the enjoyment, all the joy of the Lord sometimes gets driven from my heart until I remember the feast of grace set before me. Here are signs that you've forgotten how amazing grace is. Here's one. You are unforgiving. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus talks about a servant who owed his master more than he could ever pay back, and he was forgiven of the entire debt. And the same man sees another servant who owes him very little, and he takes him to task. You've forgotten how amazing grace is if you are holding unforgiveness. What is their sin compared to your sin that Christ has forgiven you of? A woman who had endured the horrors of the Holocaust, Corrie ten Boone. This was put to test in her life. After one of her talks, a man comes up to her and tells her, Fräulein Boone, do you remember me? I was one of the guards in the concentration camp she lost her sister to. And he holds out his hand. Isn't it wonderful how God forgives sinners? And she didn't want to hold it. She didn't want to shake his hand. And she felt in that moment, one of those moments that stretch on almost to eternity, the Holy Spirit telling her, if you don't forgive, I've not forgiven you. You've forgotten how amazing grace is if you are unforgiving. If you are bitter, you have forgotten how amazing grace is because in Colossians 3.8, it tells us one of the things we should put to death is our bitterness. But now you must put all away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. That's the way you used to live, but you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. <coughs> if you are a believer today, but you lack assurance of salvation... You have forgotten how amazing grace is. In 1 John, John, John talks about this, that at some point in time, if your hearts condemn you, take heart because God is greater than your heart. Be encouraged. God is greater than your heart. And he talks about lacking assurances because you hate your brother in Christ. You lack assurance because you hate your brother in Christ. 
If you lack assurance today, it's because you've forgotten how amazing grace is that causes us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you are without hope today, you have forgotten how amazing grace is. Joshua 1.9. Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joseph didn't have a Bible like we have a Bible. He had to be told that by the Lord, but we are told he is Emmanuel, God with us. If you lose hope, you've forgotten how amazing grace is. Have you lost your joy? Have you lost your joy? Who is the source of our joy? It is the Lord, and we know the Lord through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've forgotten how amazing grace is. Today, are you entitled that God owes you something? You've forgotten how amazing grace is. So many people are so bitter with the Lord because they believe that God owed them X, Y, and Z, things he's never promised. They had this transactional view of God that God is really lucky to have you in the kingdom. We realize it is all of grace, how amazing grace is. We don't act entitled. We act thankful and that an attitude of gratitude. In our last song here, thank you so much, worship team. We need to search our hearts and realize what areas have I forgotten how amazing grace is? In general, have I forgotten how amazing grace is? I'm so glad you guys, you're pretty good about not coming over unannounced because if you'd have come over unannounced on Wednesday, you'd have seen me just bawling in my office because of how amazing God's grace is. And God, the Holy Spirit dealing with me, how ungrateful I often am. How completely oblivious I am to how amazing his grace is. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And you know what's so awesome about going chapter by chapter? We're almost there to where they're going to see how amazing grace is. And they still don't believe it all the way to the end. And Joseph has to tell them as he weeps yet again, Am I in the place of God? What you meant for evil, God meant for good of what is being done. The saving of many. And it says he comforted them and told them he'd take care of them and their children. Maybe that's what you need today is the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart of comfort that he'll take care of you and your little ones. That you are not beyond his reach. He has not forgotten about you, but you perhaps have forgotten truly about his amazing grace.